Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Rich Cohen, who is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. He writes for The New Yorker, Harper's, and The New York Times, and his books include Tough Jews, The Avengers, Late Effect, Machers and Rockers, Sweet and Low, and most recently, Israel is Real, an obsessive quest to understand the Jewish nation and its history. Rich, welcome to Berkeley. Glad to be here. Where were you born and raised? Uh, Glencoe, Illinois, outside of Chicago, Illinois, where the S is silent. It's good, important to remember. <laughs> and, and looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Well, in a way, it's very Jewish because my parents had a sort of a religion in a holy place, and that was Brooklyn. They were exiles <laughs> of Brooklyn. My father was from Bensonhurst. My mother was from Flatbush. And my father was transferred. He worked for Allstate Insurance out to Libertyville, Illinois, uh, where he always told us he was the only, we were the only Jewish family. When my, my sister was the only Jewish kid in school, and, and my parents finally, after a couple of years, said, great news, another Jewish kid is coming. She said, great news. They said, your brother, Stephen Cohen. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so um, very much we grew up sort of with a sense of exile, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, this case, not exile from the Holy Land, but exile from New York, mm-hmm. and sort of felt we were away from where the real action was, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I really think that that was my condition, and then somehow it echoed the sort of Jewish condition of exile from the, where the spiritual action was, which is the Holy Land. Very interesting. And, and what sort of conversation was there around the dinner table? Was was there a lot of discussion about uh, uh, the place of the Jews in the world, about current events, or what? Well, I mean, very much being Jewish was very important to my father. It wasn't like anything we talked about. It just permeated everything that we were. And it was like the Lenny Bruce routine, you know, like some things are Jewish and some things aren't, even if they're not Jewish or not. There's a There's a way of looking at the world and I think it's just kind of a wryness and a sarcasm and a kind of humor that I grew up with that came through my father. And it was very important to him that we knew who we were and where we came from. And uh, he used to say, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know who you are. And I really grew up with that idea, and it was very strong and still strong with my father. And and what, uh, I gather that one of your books is about your grandfather and your family, and your grandfather uh, was the person who created uh, the sweet and low... Yeah, well, my, grand, my mother's father, Benjamin Eisenstadt, was a lawyer uh, after, during the Depression, couldn't get a job, and he wound up working as a counterman at a diner across the street from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And uh, he, after the war, he had no business, so he decided to, um, he owned this diner, he decided to package tea, and nobody bought his tea. So he had this idea, it really came from my grandmother, because he didn't like how the sugar got crusted over in the sugar dispenser when he was working at the diner. He thought it was unsanitary and a pain. So he took his tea bag machines that he'd bought, and he converted them and made the first sugar packets. So he invented the sugar packet. And then about 10 years later, because he was always on a diet, I say because he didn't like who he was, he invented, <laughs> he invented Sweet and Low. And he took the name Sweet and Low from an old Tennyson poem, and he had this idea that he would be selling stuff to diabetics or people that were told by doctors they couldn't eat sugar, and he plugged into sort of the zeitgeist. He wasn't happy with who he was. Turns out neither was anybody in America. 
And I, I say plugged into this this bullet train called Fat but Still Hungry. <laughs> and he you know, made a fortune of, from which my side of the family was disinherited, mm-hmm. which is why I am not wearing a suit made entirely of gold right now. I, I see. <laughs> I see. So uh, uh, what led you to become a writer? I mean, it, it seems to flow naturally from being an intellectual and uh, which, which is part of your story about the Jews. Well, I think in my family, whatever, we're just storytellers. My dad's a big storyteller. He wrote a book called You Can Negotiate Anything, which is a negotiating book, but it's full of stories. And, um, and I'm the youngest kid in my family, and sort of to get attention, it's like an old story. How to have a good story, and I was always had good stories, and that's the storytelling. And the reporting part is I was the kid, would go uptown and walk home and like, a hundred interesting things would happen to me that I'd be telling about. Mm-hmm. And the kids I was with, nothing happened to them. And I realized either I was crazy or I was n- noticing things. I noticed a lot of things, and I saw a lot of street comedy, naturally. And when I was a kid, I actually put out a family magazine mm-hmm. where I reported on things like my parents' sex lives and what was going on in my father's <laughs> career. And um, the story, Herb and Ellen, that's my parents, Herb and Ellen Fool Around, in issue three of Action Magazine, actually caused... My magazine to be censored and shut down, which taught me about by the authorities. Yeah. Yes, yeah. by how the world really works. <laughs> I see. Uh, and where where did you do your undergraduate work? Tulane, uh, New Orleans. And was was writing or English what you majored in? Or? I was a history major. I thought I was going to go to law school. Probably my everyone in my family is a lawyer. They're all a bunch of prosecutors. My brother's a prosecutor. My sister's a prosecutor. My wife's a prosecutor. So I thought that that's what I would do. Um, but I was really interested in writing about history. I was interested in stories, and I'm very interested in where things originated. It's just a fascination I have. So I wrote a book about the blues. I was very interested in who was the first guy to play the blues. You know, the book about Jewish gangsters, I found out that Arnold Rothstein, who was a famous Jewish gangster, was probably the first gangster to carry all his money outside of a wallet in a big roll in his front pocket. Mm-hmm. And I just love finding the first guys who did stuff. And with this book, I was, with the Israel book, I was really interested in who was the first uh, Zionist. You know, mm-hmm. so very much, I was a history major who liked writing about history. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, did you write for a, a literary or any kind of magazine at Tulane? I or? did. I wrote short stories. I had stuff published in Tulane Literary Magazine, and and I thought I would be a fiction writer mm-hmm. because I just thought that that's where the real writing was done because that's not what they taught us. And you would read uh, either you know really good novels in English class, and in history class you'd read often very dry history books. And then uh, I was coming out of school. And I sent a bunch of resumes around, and I got a job completely randomly and luckily in the messenger department of the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. And this is back when the New Yorker had this tradition of this messenger room that had these people had come out of, like Truman Capote had worked there. And a lot of writers had worked, writers who weren't necessarily the most educated people but wanted to be writers. And there I sort of discovered that the writing I was really interested in, the stuff I really liked was not literary nonfiction. So, like, Joseph Mitchell became one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and Joseph Mitchell was alive, and he sort of, I spent a lot of time And, and with tell him. us exactly who he was. Actually, he was a, a well, one of the, the great writers of, of The New Yorker. Yes, yeah, I think he's the greatest. Somebody said if, if James Joyce wrote nonfiction, that's what he would write. And he, would, he was from North Carolina. He was a news, an old New York newspaper man who started writing for The New Yorker, and he wrote profiles of, of interesting characters. And what interested me about his career is his early stories 
were about characters on the fringes of society, circus mm-hmm. freaks, strange people, and he wrote about their strange lives. And by the end of his career, he was writing about ordinary, everyday people, but he was finding the aspects of their lives that was strange and sort of mystical. And you really saw how this guy turned everyday life into a kind of poetry. And mm-hmm. it just, I, it, I just, be, I fell in love with that and fell in love with wanting to emulate that kind of writing. And, and he was actually there, and there, there's this very interesting story about you're knocking on his door. And, and so he, he was not just a mentor in print, but a, a mentor uh, up front. Yeah, well, he famously published his last story in The New Yorker in 1963, but he lived until, like, so I think he died like in 1995. And the story was that he would go into his office every day. People would hear the typewriter, but he never, ever turned anything in. And people were very respectful, worshipful, and almost a little scared of him. And I went down and one day, and I just knocked on the door, and I went in to see him. And I got, you know, it, was, it turns out it's like the prettiest girl at the school that nobody asks to the dance. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It turned out that he wasn't all those things. People just didn't really, a lot of people didn't engage with him, especially younger people, because they were worshipful of him. And it was a great gift for me in my life that I got to have this friendship with him when I was in my early 20s. And I felt like to some degree he was really encouraging and helpful to me and a great model for me and somebody I think about all the time. And and I gather that uh, when you weren't delivering messages or talking to him, you you spent a lot of time in the New York of Stacks reading back issues of the great writers. Yeah, well, I said I went to Tulane and I felt like I didn't really, not to put down Tulane at all, but I didn't really get a great education there because um, I was, New Orleans itself is just too distracting, you know? So I got a great education, but not in the stuff you go to school to learn. So um, I got a great education in Mardi Gras, the city, (laughs) drunkenness, and all those kinds of things. So um, I felt like I wanted to really read. So I went back and I read sort of everything I could read because I thought I was going to go to graduate school. So I thought I'm just going to spend two years just reading. And I went back into the New Yorker stacks and I read When you were at the New Yorker or or even before? At the New Yorker, I thought I was going to, I think I was accepted to law school and I I deferred it twice. And I just was reading this stuff and then I I decided to try to start writing. And then after a while, I started to get some stuff published in the New Yorker and it was like such a thrill that that was the end of law school. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, uh. Let's talk a little about writing. You you write for a lot of the best magazines. You you do a lot of profiles. Uh, what 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 do you see as the the skills and the virtues that that make for a a good magazine writer? First, well, I think the thing is it's to be a good writer. I mean, to be a good writer of of sentences, because. You could basically have a, sen- a story that isn't well put together, but if all the sentences are good, you'll read it through to the end. And you can have a story that's perfectly organized but boring, and you, you won't read more than a page. And So basically, I think the main uh, job of a writer is to hold the reader. That's number one, and then everything else comes after that. So don't be boring. And the other writers who I really came to admire for that were, you know, I, after I got really into Joseph Mitchell, I th- wanted to really see if, like, the magazine story is kind of an art and it's kind of feel like now it's a fear that it's a dying art. You know, it's like learning how to make stained glass for medieval churches or something, you know. But I became very interested in, like, Tom Wolfe, the early uh, sort of new journalism he did, and the verve uh, of which he wrote and the way he brought people to life. And he found in individual people that were profiled a sort of microcosm for the whole country. So he was writing about America. So when he was writing about the astronauts, 
-hmm. which started as a magazine story in Rolling Stone. It became about America, the good and the bad of America. And I really uh, admire that, and I think that there's something about those stories that should be a little like early rock and roll. You know, like it should go a little far, it should be a little noisy, and it should at times be slightly offensive. But in all that, you'll, you'll get really what's alive about these stories. And um, so that's what I was really trying to do. And there were like a lot of writers, Ian Frazier and Alec Wilkinson, who writes for The New Yorker, and a whole group of David Foster Wallace later on, who really found a way to make nonfiction ex- more exciting to me than fiction, because fiction sort of became academic and that it was taught at the academy and there was a lot of rules, whereas nonfiction, it's sort of there were no rules in a way. I mean, there's certain rules that got to be true and everything else, but as far as structure and character and all that stuff, you're free to tell the story how you want, and I, I found it was like, like a mountain full of fresh snow. Do you, do you have to uh, navigate extremes? You know, at one end uh, might be somebody like Wolf, uh, who you want to emulate, and the other end uh, maybe a Norman Mailer who sort of goes too far in projecting himself into what purports to be nonfiction? Yeah, well, the difference is that Norman Mailer, it's got something about your ego and sense of self, and that's a personality thing that he had. He was basically nuts. And and, and if you read Norman Mailer, you know it's about Norman Mailer, and you can't take Mm -hmm. it. I mean, I'm kind of a fan of Norman Mailer, but I do. That was never a danger of me for me because... Mm -hmm. I'm full of too much self-loathing. You know what I mean? <laughs> another, another Jewish characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. It was never going to be a problem that I was going to turn myself into the story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or, but what I liked about Tom Wolfe was it was kind of like uh, a lot of art. And it was mm-hmm. like pop art. You know? And he found these, these, these ways to bring these people alive and mm-hmm. like the way they should be. So he, would, he could write about stock car racing. One of my favorite early stories is about stock car racing in the South, and it becomes a whole portrait. And now you go back and read it, and it's like literature because it's about a whole era and a whole time, and that story will live forever uh, like, like literature. When, when do you decide, hey, I'm going to turn something into a book? So talk a little about the gangster book. Presumably you did individual profiles maybe for a magazine, but at a certain point you said, hey, there's a bigger story here, and, and then how does, how does your writing change? Well... The gangster book, Tough Jews, is a little different than the others because it was my first book, and I very much wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a book for a few reasons. One is I was just normally ambitious, and I wanted to write a book. And two, I sort of thought I was really writing a lot of magazine profiles, and every time I started to get to where it's interesting for me, the story ended. And I felt like I was going on a lot of these little car trips, and I wanted to have a big thing where I could go spend a year, two years, go deep, you know, and really try all these kind of stylistic things that you can't necessarily even do for a magazine like Rolling Stone where you can do a lot. And um, I was always thinking about what would be a good book, and my father, growing up, uh, used to tell me these stories about Murder Incorporated, about the gangsters from Brownsville, Brooklyn, Jewish gangsters, and whenever you heard about Jewish gangsters, it tended to be like the guy Hesh in The Sopranos, or uh, Meyer Lansky, Hyman Roth and The Godfather, and it was always sort of the Jewish stereotype within the underworld. So it was, if you look in the gangster encyclopedia, and there are two of them, under Meyer Lansky it says like accountant to the mob. An accountant, that's the Jewish stereotype. And what I liked about these guys is they were the muscle, you know. They were the guy on the street. They were the torpedoes. And it was a whole different era of Jewish history. So I wanted to go back and really explore who those guys were and write about why my father told the stories and this whole thing. 
And it was my first book, so I was a little scared about writing a big, long thing, so I broke it into like 10 pieces and wrote each piece as if it was a you know, magazine story or something mm-hmm. or an essay. And then with my later books, I then sort of discovered, I believe, how to write a book, which is it's like writing a book compared to writing a magazine story is like building a skyscraper compared to building two-story house. You need, everything needs to be much bigger, thought out, planned, at least the way I do it. So you need you know, a 40-foot deep foundation. You need huge pilings. You need to, to build it like it's a structure. And that was something I learned, hopefully learned, over time just by doing it. Uh, you, you obviously were drawn to Jewish themes, although not all your books have those themes. Uh, and you, you are, uh, I think I'm hearing you say that, that you have a, an ear for the quirky, the unexpected. I mean, if you're going to write a book about the Jews, it, it's somewhat surprising to write about Jewish gangsters. Right. Uh, how do you account for that? Well, part of the Jewish gangster thing, in, in, a, in a particular way, is... I was really interested in gangster movies, you know. Mm. We used to watch The Godfather at my house like it was uh, the Bible or something, Bible <laughs> movie. My dad used to say, "Come to, hey, The Godfather's on, sit down, come down, learn a little <laughs> something about life. And the big heartbreaking thing to me is I asked, he said, your brother's like uh, Sonny, Cor- it's like Sonny, good guy but not a great leader. And I said, what am I, thinking I'd be Michael Corleone? He said, you, you're like Fredo. <laughs> so... <laughs> Tough house. Yeah, that's right. So, but I was interested in that. But, but in a deeper way, I, I was I was interested in. I like writing about people I feel like I know, and I can understand them. And like one thing, one of my favorite writers is Saul Bellow. He's a Chicago Jewish guy from you know Chicago and West Side of Chicago. And I feel like when I read his books, I know those guys because they're the friends of my father's. You know, they're the guys that moved from the, from the west side of Chicago to the north shore of Chicago. They're like a little rough around the edges. And when it got to the gangsters, I felt like I knew those guys in my bones because they were guys a generation or two older than my father. My father was not a gangster, obviously, but it was, they were from the same world, and I understood that world, and it was easy and fun for me to write about them. And sometimes I think that the reason why you, I write these things is like, what, what's the reason why? And it's, I always feel like it's reclamation. It's like you, you write to get back what you lost mm-hmm. in some way. And well, it, explain that. What do you mean by that? I mean... Well, I feel like, you know, to be really melancholy and morose about it, I mean, I feel like as you live and move through, everything behind you blows up and goes away. And, it's, okay. and if you're somebody who looks back and is mournful about it, you feel like everything is being ripped away from you, and the only way to sort of preserve it is to sit down and think about it and, and be in it by writing about it. And the really sad thing, which I discovered with Lake Effect, is by writing about it, you save it, but you really destroy it, too. Lake Effect is about... About the kids I grew up with. I see. I'm thinking a lot about them because one of the kids I grew up with died recently, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking a lot about it. And the fact is, the reason why it's destroyed is because you pick one story, and, and that... You, you blow that up, you light that, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then, as a result, all the other stories get kind of lost. So, so in, in a way that one of your frustrations, it sounds like, is not being able to capture all of the complexity, although you're aware of the problem and try to do that. Right. Well, like, there's a great Borges story called the uh, uh, Aleph about one point that contains everything that ever happened at any time that it ever happened simultaneously in one point. And that's like what you'd like to do, but it's impossible to do, so you wind up having to choose. And that's another thing about Jewish history I learned. Like, Jewish history is a story. 
and it was told by people so they could save it, so they could reclaim it. But in telling one story, hmm. they lost all the other stories. So basically what I really learned over time is what memory is, which is memory isn't so much made by putting in, it's by leaving out. Mm-hmm. That's how you remember. You can't keep everything. So you take what you can keep and you lose everything else, and that's memory. Memory is what's left after forgetting. So let's now talk about your new book. Let's show it first, Israel is Real. And uh, first I want to ask you, uh, why did you write this book? Well, in a, in a, in a very basic way, <clears throat> I felt like the story of Israel, the story of the Jews, it's a very important part of my life, but I hadn't really examined it. And I felt like where I grew up in Glencoe on the North Shore of Chicago, we were taught Jewish history, but the kind of history we were taught was kind of very uh, banal, plain, and um, boring. And I sometimes thought that, that was, this was an act of Jewish assimilation, which is they wanted to make it so that if a Christian walked into a Jewish synagogue, they'd go, oh, I know this. This looks just like church. We have nothing to fear from these people. You know, I felt that there was some <laughs> of that element to it. But the result was the history was very bland. And when I go back and actually read Jewish history, it wasn't bland. It was weird. It was strange. It was mystical. It was surreal. And in the same way, like by writing about Jewish gangsters, it was a way to sort of make Jewish history a little more interesting than we were taught. Writing about some degree of writing about this book, which was the part about false messiahs and Jewish mystics in the Middle Ages and the Jewish idea, was really an attempt, I thought, to make Jewish history strange again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious because you clearly had a Jewish education. You must have gone to Hebrew school and been bar mitzvah, I'm assuming. Yes. So, so the question is, did, did you find yourself, as you wrote this, filling in pieces so that the, the story really wasn't told in its totality? That's what you were suggesting a minute ago. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It, 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 you know, history is constantly being rewritten. The past is constantly being changed because if you want to change the future, the quickest way to change the future is you change the past. I mean, that's why Ahmadinejad says the Holocaust didn't happen. You change the past, you seemingly change the future. And there was a, a kind of history that we were taught. Um, and I, I, I always thought it was just because it was simple and it was sort of the easiest to teach. But later when I really got into this, I thought, you know, maybe they were, maybe they were right. You know what I mean? Because... Jewish history, in its way, is very interesting, but it's very terrible. And maybe the best way to free Jews in America is to make the past a little more boring. Maybe a boring past is the best sort of gift you can get from your parents. Mm-hmm. And whereas in this book you set out to, uh, to, to show its richness with humor and sadness and, and a lot of tragedy. Right. Well, I really felt like, you know, there was a way, in a way that after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 A.D., the sort of zealot way, which was the way of the fighting Jews and the Maccabees, which defied Rome and fought Rome as well as anybody fought Rome in the whole history of the Roman Empire, wound up in the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Temple, the death of 90% of the Jews in the world, and the dispersal of the Jews. And out of the ashes came the rabbis, sort of the peace party, that sort of reinterpreted Judaism and said, we're going to take this religion, which is based on a state, and we're going to sort of detach it from its state. And all the things that were physical, the city of Jerusalem, animal sacrifice, the temple, they were going to turn those into symbols. So you didn't need Jerusalem to have Judaism anymore. Anytime you had a Jew studying the books, the Torah, mm-hmm. you, in a sense, had Jerusalem, and that made it portable 
and it made it kind of indestructible. And it was a really a great uh, sort of miracle that that happened. And then, of course, in our own time, that idea, which was universal, has been, in a sense, been made particular again in the form of modern Israel. So, so in a way, if, if, you, if this were a, a, an account of the evolution of the Jewish people, uh, what, what you're getting at, it, it would seem, is the adaptation of the Jewish people to their environment. Uh, and in the first instance, the Romans come and destroy the the place that the Jewish people held. And and when when this occurred, let let's walk through this mm-hmm. story that that you're telling. Uh, when this occurred, there was a division in the, among the Jewish people about what to do. Uh, one group were the zealots, the others were the peacemakers. Talk about that, because it, it resonates with today's time. Right. Well, it's interesting. If you look at early Christianity and the Peace Party, they were very similar, because they faced the same problems, which is they were living under Roman occupation. And the question is, how do you practice as a Jew in a Roman world? And when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, he's, to me, speaking as a Jew, giving Jews a permission to live. Because the other way, the zealot way, is do not render unto Caesar. Mm-hmm. And, and the, tell us who the zealots were. The... the zealots gave us the word zealot, and they were a party of very orthodox, fundamentalist, maybe orthodox is the wrong word, it's an anachronistic word, but they were, I guess they'd be like fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And they, they, Jews. Jews. In, in the Holy Land. Right, right, and they believed that the religion should be... Uh, the religion should be practiced as it had been practiced 500 years before them, and you couldn't pra- you couldn't in any way have Roman presence on the Temple Mount because it was all sacrilegious. To have a bust of a Roman emperor up on the Temple Mount was uh, to violate the first commandment: don't put any gods before me. And you had to throw that bust down. The problem is when you threw the bust down, then the Romans came and the Peace Party said, "Look, we we're survival is more important here than this." Uh, small, kind of almost petty adherence to the law. And you had this civil war uh, among Jews in Jerusalem before you had the revolt with Rome. And this would be about, uh, this would be before the time, after Christ or before the time? During Christ, when you, when you go you know all this history and you read the Gospels, you can see that this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Jesus is part of this. It's part of this same world. And this idea, are we going to have worldly power? Or are we going to have another kind of power? Not because even that's necessarily our first choice. But our, my kingdom is not of this world, is what Jesus says. Well, that's a reality. I mean, the, 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 the Romans had the kingdom of this world. So really there was this civil war between the peace party and the zealots, and the zealots won. And the zealot way triumphed. And the zealots threw out the Romans. They pushed the Romans out of Judea. And then the Romans came back with a much bigger army and crushed the zealots. And then about 80 years, that was the first Jewish revolt. The temple was destroyed. And about 80 years later, another Jewish leader named Bar Kokhba, or that was what they called him, which meant son of the morning star. He was like a Jewish general. He rose up. He rebelled against Rome in an even more successful way. Hadrian was the only war of Hadrian's time as emperor. The Roman emperor, yeah. The Roman emperor Hadrian came in and crushed the rebellion, 90% of the Jews died, Bar Kokhba died, and um, Bar Kokhba for Jews went from being the son of the star to the son of falsity. He was recognized as a false messiah, and Jerusalem itself was basically bulldozed, whatever the word is, knocked to the ground, 
And on top of it, because getting rid of this problem of the Jews, which was a problem of the Jews not recognizing the Roman gods as equal, okay, to get rid of this problem, they built the Roman city on top of what had been Jerusalem. They changed the name of the whole area to Philistine, which came out of the Bible, which had never really been a place. I mean, maybe it had been a place and who knows. And they expelled the Jews from their city. And Jews could come once a year to visit the ruins of the temple and weep. And that's uh, Tisha B'Av, which is the Jewish holiday where they you know, remember the destruction of the second temple. So the Jews are dispersed after uh, 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 learning the lesson that the Romans uh, had taught them, which was they would be defeated by a, a greater power. Right. Uh, and you, you, this then leads you to tell the story of the adaptation, because I've raised this issue of, of how the Jews adapted. And now let's talk about what happened in the uh, uh, diaspora. And, and the first uh, Jew that you talk about is really a Jew who was a koan, a, a, a son of a, of a priest or of a priestly family who essentially becomes a, a Roman historian. Oh. Talk about that because, because he, he defined one path which was to become a good citizen of Rome. Right. Well, Josephus, who was, you know, you had this generation, it's hard to believe, but you had a generation of Jews who lived at the time of the temple, worshipped at the temple and saw the temple destroyed. I mean, think about that generation. It's unbelievable. And out of that generation, it's one of those hinge moments. It's really unbelievable. Josephus was a member of the Peace Party, and he argued against defiance of Rome because he'd been to Rome, and he knew about Roman power. And um, he was, there was act, they were actually trying to arrest him at one point because of his speeches against defiance of Rome. And he then, when, when the decision was made to fight this war with Rome, he was made the head of the... Jewish armies in the northern part around the Sea of Galilee. And for several years, he sort of didn't really engage the Romans. Uh, and he, a lot of people called him a traitor and said he wasn't engaging the Romans on purpose. And then he did engage the Romans, and he fought a huge battle and was uh, destroyed. His, his army was destroyed, and he was hiding in a cavern underground. And he was given the choice uh, to surrender to the Romans rather than be killed. And there's a story that he tells, which is like the Masada story, where the people with him all wanted to kill themselves rather than surrender to the Romans. He was hiding with a group of leaders, and he sort of, in his book, has himself making this very eloquent, reminds me of like Plato, when there are these written back and forths about why life was valuable and worth preserving even in this situation. And he surrenders to Rome, and he becomes, he goes and he sees the, uh, Vespasian and he and Titus and he sort of the, the Roman the Roman emperor to be and he sort of says you are going to be the Roman emperor and it comes out of Jewish scripture because it says the one will the most powerful one will come and defeat Judea you're defeating Judea you must be the most powerful one the most powerful one must be emperor and when he became emperor he sort of freed Joseph Matthias and, get, and made him a citizen of Rome, and he became Josephus. Mm-hmm. And he then wrote, went to Rome, and he was present at the destruction of Jerusalem, working with the Romans, almost like in a Tokyo Rose capacity before radio. He was wandering along <laughs> the walls beneath the city, yelling, surrender, 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 look what you're destroying, we'll never mm-hmm. recover from this. And he was right in a way, but he was a traitor. 
That's mm -hmm. a traitor. He was with the Romans during the later part of the war. And he settled in Rome and he wrote all this history. So the reason why we know a lot of the details about the Jewish war and the temple and what the temple looked like and all that is it was preserved by a, by a traitor. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting because Josephus was a, was a traitor, yet he preserved... Through his treason, he preserved Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And he become, to me, becomes like almost the first writer of the exile, the first Jewish writer of the exile who changes his name and has to, have, and has to write to a non-Jewish audience. So he becomes a model for all those uh, Jewish writers. Let's say he's a precursor to Erwin Shaw. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, now, the other person who emerges, uh, a rabbi, uh, who was a disciple of Hillel, who you talk about, who, who's actually a key figure in moving the Jews in the diaspora to, to that view of the world, which is, in a way, part of the thesis of your book, Jonathan ben Zakai. Talk a little about him and, and his contribution, because, again, we're talking about the Jews learning to adapt to this new environment. Well, it was Yanin ben Zakai, and he... Um, he his story is really unbelievable. Okay, so he was part of the peace party. He was in Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans. Uh, the, 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 the zealots would not let him leave. They would not let anybody leave. They were holding the members of the peace party who were there kind of hostage. The way he got out of the city is they <clears throat> put him like in a coffin and they said that he had died and they carried him out to his own funeral. And in a way, it's, it's like this weird little spark that, that saves the civilization because he slips out of kind of the burning ship and then goes on to found the new civilization. He's carried out of Jerusalem to his own funeral. So it's like a metaphor for the Jewish people hmm. in a way. He's brought out of the city of Jerusalem to his own funeral. And he went to see, uh, he went to see uh, Vespasian, and Titus, the same thing that Josephus did, he made a similar prediction, okay, that you will be emperor of Rome. And they asked him if he wanted anything, and he said he just wanted to start a school in Jabne, which was a town in the northern part of Israel. And this school became called the, the Vineyard, which is what people called it. And it was sort of the first rabbinical school, and it sort of was the first place. The big thing that they did, for example, is they said the shofar can be blown to call to the holy days. It didn't have to be blown in Jerusalem. It could be blown in Jabne, which was huge because basically it sort of said we can have a center other than uh, Jerusalem. It meant God could be worshipped in a place other than Jerusalem. And then it meant, in a, sense, in a sense, any city can be Jerusalem. And then you go from there to the idea that there is no worldly Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is an idea. And that's why to this day you have Jews in Jerusalem. You know, Jews everywhere finish their Passover Seder by saying, next year in Jerusalem. Well, now there's a Jewish state and Jews living in Jerusalem. And what do they say? They say next year in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And that's because Yanan and Ben Zakai took that corporal city and he kind of made it a city in the air. And, and so what, what was a destroyed reality became a virtual reality in a way. And it was... Uh, not just the chauffeur, but over time, the Torah, the commentaries on the Torah, the commentaries on the Talmud, uh, and so on, that together set the Jews on a path to still long for Zion and Jerusalem and the temple, but to accept the reality of not having it. Right. Well, they, they reinterpreted every part of the physical city into a symbol. 
So you had this, you had kind of, uh, a, you're right, it's a virtual city. It's, and um, and the, you had sort of the Jews left history. So if, if things had been operating the old way, Josephus, his book, would have been part of the Bible. Okay, I mean, because the books in the Bible are mostly history books. There's religious books, but there's a lot of history mm. books. And the Jews were sort of done with history after the destruction of the Second Temple. It was like they'd had enough of history, and they left history. And I always think, and then what you had is you had only the books that were chosen and put in the canon, and that's what Yanin and Ben-Zakai did, and that's what I mean by leaving out, because he left a lot of books out. And the books that he thought had the wrong message, like the Book of Maccabees, which was about war, and resistance, they left that out of the canon. And they put in the books, the books that they thought would be the new religion in a way, and it was a new religion. And, and sort of you had this idea, and then the Jews stopped writing history. There were no Jewish history books about life in the diaspora in all those years. So instead of writing new history, you had people writing new books about old history, and then new books about the new books about the old history. And that's all the commentary on the Torah, the commentary on the commentary, the commentary on the commentary on the commentary. And I always think it's as if like Hollywood stopped making movies in 1948, but they kept putting out new reviews of the old movies and then ultimately reviews of the reviews of the movies. And I also think of the Jews as kind of like one, if you think of the Jews as one guy who gets on a 2,000-year plane flight and only has one book. Mm-hmm. And he reads the book so many times backwards and forwards that he finds meaning every, on every page and on what's on this page and what's on this page and codes and everything mm-hmm. else. Which, which, I guess, prepared uh, the Jews for the role they would play in modernization, which I, which I believe is partly Yuri Sluskind's point, the historian here at Berkeley. Now, so... As, but I should as, say, Yuri Sluskind, I think, is a genius, and I think he wrote a great, great book, and I have a, a debt to him. You know, I learned a lot from him. Yeah, that, that is, it, it's uh, uh, Jews in the 20th century, or yeah. the Jewish century, it's called, yes. Uh, now, uh, uh, a part of this new reality, which, as it related to the history, was virtual, was a belief that Jews would be embraced by the new states of Europe as they scattered into different countries. So Jews who had adopted this uh, diaspora world uh, over time came to believe they uh, would become uh, first citizens of a particular country while they were actually Jews. But as as we move through the centuries, and we're covering a lot, and people should read the right. book because we can't cover it all, what what they they came to realize, and especially in the 20th century, you know, when the Nazis came to power, that they they would not be embraced. They really couldn't be. Some of them felt full citizens. Right. And this led to the d- development of the Zionist movement in the 19th century. What, what you show, which is quite interesting, and the Zionist movement wanted to go back to the Holy Land and, and establish uh, a Jewish state for the Jewish nation. What, what you show is that when that movement emerged, there was a lot of ambivalence right. beginning in the late 19th and early 20th centuries about whether Jews who were assimilated in different parts of Europe really wanted a Jewish state. Right. Talk well, about I, that. I really think that that movement you're talking about really begins with, you know, Jews are put in ghettos in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And a lot of Jews thought the Jewish character was sort of warped in the ghetto. They became disfigured somehow. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what a lot of the early Zionists believe for sure. And, um, and Napoleon opened the ghettos. 
And Napoleon sort of said, you could be, I think his famous phrase was, a Frenchman abroad and a Jew at home, or a man abroad and a Jew at home, to which a lot of people said, you can't be a Jew and a man, you know? <laughs> but that was, that was what he said, and that became the ideal. And, and, and a lot of Jews, most Jews in Europe really embraced this idea that they were going to be citizens of their country first and a Jew at home, like you'd be a German and a Christian, you'd be a German and a Jew. And what happened is, and, you know, and these societies, which had really been religious Christian societies, and, and Jews within a lot of the stories of the religion were, were considered guilty of killing God. Okay, that was removed, supposedly, and now Jews would be free as men to enter these societies that weren't based on religion, they were based on nation. And what happened is, is Jews found out that there was no place for them in those new nations either, because they had been not allowed in because of religiously, they were Christ killers, and then over time they found out they weren't allowed in because of genetically, they were never going to be Germans, they were inferior in the case when you get up to Hitler, and it's the most grotesque example of this kind of anti-Semitism. And, and Zionists, sort of early Zionism came up, and sort of the first Zionists, like Herzl, he wanted to assimilate. And then at one point he wanted a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. He was looking for a solution to what he saw as a problem of anti-Semitism. And when he felt there could be no solution, that assimilation wasn't working, religious conversion wouldn't work, intermarriage wouldn't work, that the only way to give a Jew a decent life and make him safe in the world was to let him have their own nation, where in a sense they wouldn't become more Jewish, they would in a sense be free of being Jewish, because they would be in a state where being a Jew was so no big deal, it would cease to have that kind of meaning, and then people, their personalities and various talents would flower, and you'd have this great flowering. And one reason I think why Herzl's idea resonated and worked is because it didn't come out of nowhere, it echoed this old Jewish idea of going back, a religious idea, and rebuilding the temple. So it was this modern idea that echoed this ancient idea, which even Gibbon in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire notes that the desire to go back and re rebuild the temple defined the Jews everywhere. But the fact is, as you say, that a lot of the Jews in these different places resented the Zionists. And they feared them because they thought they were already fighting the stigma of dual loyalty, which is they were trying to believe, they were trying to show, let's say, I'm British Jew. I'm first a Brit and then a Jew. But now you want to come along and basically say, no, I'm first a Jew. And the people that really resisted Zionism most strongly at first and were the most upset by it were Jews who thought that it was a threat to Jewish position and Jewish progress throughout the Western world. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so what you have then in, in, in the birth of Zionism is a, a division within the Jewish community about whether there should be a Jewish state. Uh, and uh, there were also divisions within the Jews about what this place, you know, would be like once it would establish. Would it be a place where you could really be Jewish or would it be a place where uh, being Jewish didn't matter? Right, right. So, so the, these are tensions that, and, and I guess the, the virtue of your book, I would say, is that it brings out these stories that we have forgotten when, uh, when a certain vision triumphs. So right. the state of Israel is established in 48 as a result of, of a complex sort of set of circumstances, the Holocaust, uh, the position of the Jews in places like the United States, 
the fact that Harry Truman had a partner who was Jewish. Uh, and then you tell this fascinating story about a, a man uh, who I believe his name was, he was known as Benny the Banana Man. Us. Tell us about him, because he is a diaspora Jew who does very well selling bananas, right. becomes a very powerful figure, but then at a critical point, he becomes an actor in making the Jewish state right. possible. Well, it's a little mysterious. This is my theory about him um, because he was a very important guy, but he sort of was not a very public guy. So his name was Samuel Zim Murray, and he was a, a, an immigrant to the United States uh, from the Black Sea region of Russia. He wound up in uh, Selma, Alabama, as a, I think he came to the United States when he was 14, and he worked in the fruit market, and the, sort of the, he got the lowest end of the stick, if you will, and they had him selling what they call ripes, which are bananas that are so yellow, so ripe, that if you don't sell them in six hours, they're going to go brown, and you're going to be stuck with this heap of rotten produce. So it made him like one of the greatest salesmen in, in the world. You know, and he, he was an ambitious guy, and he built up this business, and he went down to Honduras, and he bought a lot of land, and he started the Cayumel Fruit Company, and he was involved in overthrowing the government of Honduras uh, when they removed his tax exemptions. And then he went to war with United Fruit, and he had a long war with United Fruit, and he wound up taking over United Fruit uh, later in the life of United Fruit. But the point is, through United Fruit, um, he was very involved in almost every government in Central America. And when you look at, and very powerful, he was an advisor to Roosevelt. He was the head of United Fruit, one of the most powerful countries in the world. And um, he was also an, a very serious Zionist, and he's all over the diaries of Chaim Weitzman, and he was a very important guy. And um, he uh, sort of um, stepped down and was doing something else in those years. That is the years of the late 40s when the question of like Jew... 47, 46, he and steps down from the company and then comes back. Okay, and, and during this period, this is when the state of Israel becomes a reality, and it becomes a reality after a vote in the UN. Right, and there's a lot of factors, like you said. There's, a, there's about 15 different things that come into play. But one of the things was people don't realize that to, to partition that land for two states... The Holy one, Land. Yeah, yeah, one Arab, one Jew. You needed a two-thirds vote in the U.N. And the U.N. basically voted in blocks. The, uh, the European bloc all voted for partition. The Soviet bloc all voted for partition. The Arab bloc and the Muslim bloc all voted against partition. So you had almost a tie because there were a lot of different Muslim countries. And who broke the tie? All the countries in Central America all voted for partition, which made, never made any sense to me. Why did, it's, they don't have a dog in that fight. When you know the story of Samuel Zim Murray, you, it suddenly makes sense, you know, that here was this guy with incredible influence in these places and the ability to influence this vote that wouldn't have meant very much. So it was as he delivered or was acting behind the scenes and uh, probably helped deliver those Central American votes. Right. That's what I think. And that's yeah. what, and, but it's one of those things that it's sort of unofficial history. It's very hard to prove because he was behind the scenes, but that's how history really works. History works behind the scenes with big mass movements and key players, and he was one of the key players. And and we should also mention that the ship Exodus, was, which plays a critical role in the, the mythology of Israel, but also in the reality of the state being established, was probably one of his old banana boats. Yeah, it, one of United Fruits banana boats. Um, 
basically uh, the ship exodus was, you know, after the Second World War, there were Jews living in these DP camps and nobody wanted them. And the DP camps were just the concentration camps under kind of new management. And there was a whole movement of Zionists to smuggle people out and bring them in. And the Zionists needed ships. And this is the story that begins the movie Exodus with Paul Newman. And, you know, it's a real story. They would smuggle people out of these camps. They'd pack them full of these ships. And But they also had a very clear sense of PR. Mm -hmm. And they called the ship the Exodus, obviously because it had all kinds of biblical, re uh, you know, resonance. They brought it. it the, the British got around it. They, like, there's full of Holocaust survivors. They got guns pointed at these people. They're on this ship. I actually met the guy who was the captain of the ship. Not didn't run the ship, but he was a, the head of all the... The, the, the spokesman for all the people on the ship. And then the ship was sent back to Europe. Mm -hmm. And the ship went to every port. It went to Italy. They wouldn't let it land. It went to France. They wouldn't let it land. It winds up going back to Germany, and the people who had escaped, who survived the Holocaust, were sent back into what had been the concentration camps. And it became a very, very, very powerful symbol. And that ship, and some of those ships were, were donated by Sam Zimmery. So, uh, again, people should read the book, but to bring all this story up to the present, the, your, your thesis and the, 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 the rich and anecdote story that you tell really is that we come to the present where we confront, uh, uh, I think you're saying a dilemma, a contradiction between the view of those in the diaspora that the, the belief in Jerusalem and Zion and, and what was is a, is a dream that will be realized in the future, that it's a virtual reality. But once the state of Israel is established, you actually have the reality. Right. And when you have the reality of a state, you have an army, you have politicians who build coalitions, who then take stands that, that may be... Uh, appear to be very provincial from somebody outside right. looking in. So, so you have a contradiction now between the Jews of the diaspora. You say you're posing this as a dilemma, uh, a theoretical dilemma in a way, but also one that it's real that the Jews in the diaspora believe in the universal, in the abstract, but the people in Israel, the leaders especially, believe in a reality, in having an army, in defending their country, and there's a contradiction. Right. Well, basically, um, the, the, a lot of the values of the Judaism that I grew up with that were taught are, they come out of the defeat of the Second Temple, and they're all virtues that come out of weakness. And it was a great, amazing thing that Judaism and Christianity did, which they took virtues which had been abhorrent in the Roman world you know, qualities, and they made them positive values. There's kind of statelessness, uh, a kind of weakness. Uh, you become prophets and witnesses. You're, you're detached from history, and you're free to have another kind of spiritual life. And what Zionism did is it brought Jews back into history. It went from universal back to particular. Now you have a piece of land. You have to defend it with an army. And now suddenly you're mixed up in the everyday sin of the world. And you can't be a nation... You know, the history of nations is not really that glorious of any nation. And you can't be a nation and be involved in the world and not be all covered with sin. And basically you have this Jewish idea, which is a kind of a statelessness, powerless idea, but you have the reality on the ground, which is a nation with an army exercising power and being mixed up in the sinfulness of the world, and sort of sparks fly. You know, and what I'm interested in is it's such an enormous change of how, what it is to be Jewish in the world, and 
it's happened so recently that people don't, it's like sitting too close to the TV set and you can't see the shape of what's happening. But, uh, you know, to me it's becoming clear that there is this big sort of contradiction and it all sort of echoes all the different things. You know, what kind of state are we going to have? What kind of, is a state the place they become free to have a normal life? That's like Tel Aviv. You go to the beach, you drink a beer, you know? Or is it going to be the place where you live in Hebron or near Hebron uh, in the middle of a group of people that don't want you there because that's the place where King David first had the Ark of the Covenant. You know, and is it the place to be more Jewish or a place to be free of being Jewish? And it's all these problems which are political issues that need to be worked out. But they interest me as amazingly fascinating things going on in the world right now and, and in the religious world and the Jewish world and the political world and everything else. So, so how would you hope that your... Uh book informs uh, thinking about the Jewish relationship, the Jews in the diaspora and their relationship to the Jews in Israel? Well, basically, I think that the, the first early Zionists basically had it right, okay? They were pragmatic, they were modest, they were humble in their aims. And in 1967, when Israel went to war, I think rightly so, uh, there was a moment, at, they only took Jerusalem and those holy places on the last day of that war, and there was a real disagreement in that war, and David Ben-Gurion and other leaders of Israel did not want Jerusalem. They thought that it would drive the Jewish people kind of insane to be that close to the core of the biblical history. And Moshe Dayan, before the Jewish armies went into the old city of Jerusalem, said, stay out of the Vatican. And they were very clear that that's not the Israel that they were forming. And I think in 1967, after 67, the intensity of the victory, the images of the victory, the resonance with the Bible, and all these things made uh, some Jews go a little, lose the script, take a wrong turn, build the settlements, have this idea that you could have sort of the original idea, which was a Jewish democracy, and also Hebron, and that you can't have both. And now we're living in the aftermath of that confusion and that mistake and that the goal of sort of Jews, people who care about Israel, should be to try to wind that back and find a way to live a decent Jewish life with the state. And the idea of greater Israel is sort of an illusion that's gone. So, so in a way, uh, what you're suggesting is the, the Jews in the diaspora uh, have to help Israel rethink its definition of self in the Holy Land because I, I think what you're suggesting and what we may be seeing is that a provincialism, a narrow focus on what is good for Israel in the short term contradicts what may be good for Israel in right. the long term. So you can win all the battles but you lose the war and you have a political system in Israel that's skewed towards very small groups. So we're talking about settlers, that are far out in the West Bank, that are living kind of a biblical fantasy. They're a very small part of Israel, but they have disproportionate political power because of their system. The issue in America, I think, with the diaspora, I interviewed Yossi Balin, who wrote with Sari Nusebe that sort of unofficial peace plan, which would be a good peace plan. Uh, and he sort of said, well, Herzl's dream of Zionism came true in the United States. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, where you have about half the Jews in the world, or maybe it's less now, living, and the last of the diaspora, you have the freedom of Jews to not be Jewish. And a lot of people, especially my generation and younger, have taken that option. And the danger is that the situation and the argument and the discussion about Israel becomes so small 
so particular, so wound up in yards and who's allowed to speak and who's holier than holy and everything else that it's basically alienates all the younger Jews who are deciding, I, you know, I'd rather just sort of disappear into America and it's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And that is a danger for Israel. And, and why do you think that the debate within the United States among the Jewish community is so inadequate, or up until this point in time, and your book may help change that, has been so inadequate in comparison to the vigorous debate within Israel itself, even though it's the conservatives who seem to win out most of the time? Well, I think, first of all, in Israel, one reason why you can have a very open debate is, first of all, because everybody accepts, for the most part, that people come from the same, have the same goal which is the survival, safety, and prosperity of Israel. Whereas in the United States, Jews feel that there are people that that isn't their goal. Their goal, their real goal, is the destruction and disappearance of Israel. And they feel that if they give anything away, if they yield it all to the argument, then they're sort of going down a slippery slope towards the uh, making Israel invalid and the end of Israel. And there's also a degree... You mean this is the, the thinking of American Jews? I think so, said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I, it's guilt. There's, there's, is there an element of guilt Well, that's here? what I was going to say. And then the fact is that, well, is, Israelis are there mm-hmm. dealing with terrorism and blah, 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 blah. So who are we, you know, to sort of, well, I'm not there. And instead of me being there, since I can't fight that fight there by living everyday life there, I'm going to fight the fight here by shouting anybody down that disagrees with me and by trying to invalidate anybody that disagrees with me. The problem is that very aggressive way of dealing with it alienates everybody. Mm-hmm. And Israel's a little country. Jews are a very small people with a very great history, and they need to find a way to live in history. And one of the great things that the early Zionists decided was they turned away from the religious idea. The religious idea was that God is going to come in, and God is going to fix everything. God is going to bring us back to the Holy Land. God is going to rebuild the temple. God is going to get rid of our enemies. And the Zionists said... God is or isn't coming. It's not our business. But we have to take responsibility for ourselves and do it for ourselves. And a lot of the people that were against the Zionists at the beginning, to me, are the same people that attack you if you're critical of Israel now. They sort of said, that's a sacrilege, okay? You can't go, you can't create a modern political state. That you're, you're not the Messiah. You're forcing the hand of God. How dare you? What right do you have? Who are you? And then these guys went and they built this state and they won the war in 67. And a lot of religious people said, oh my God, it must be God. Only God could do this. And then they went there and now if the secular government of Israel says we have to pull back from the settlements, they say, you can't do that because you're, you're going against God. And it's the opposite of the thinking that, was, that created Israel in the first place. Well, on that note, and I think uh, your, your book is a great place to uh, better inform yourself about the history uh, uh, that made the Jews in the diaspora and also the history that uh, made uh, Israel. So let me show the book one more time. And uh, let me thank you very much for being thank on our you. program. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.